Tiffany and you One and one together make two And all the stories that are true Tiffany and you Welcome to Tiffany and You. I'm your host, Tiffany Yu. It's been a really heavy time after the unnecessary deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Nina Pop, Sean Reed, and so many more. Historian Ibram X. Kendi says, being an anti-racist is necessary to fight racism. I saw this highlighted on the skim this morning, anti-racist is viewing all racial groups as equal and supporting policies that lead to equity and justice, to not only acknowledge racism exists, but to fight it whenever it arises. On today's episode, we're joined by Karima Batts. She's a diversity, equity, and inclusion advocate, a cancer survivor, and founder of the Adaptive Climbing Group. And she's here to share her perspectives on racial justice, equity, and allyship. She references a post or a series of stories on Instagram, and I wanted to share a part of that with you in her words. Where I need you is on the front lines of humanity. I need you in board meetings, Capitol Hill, your jobs, your family reunions, and your most intimate relationships with other Caucasian people. Your post about, quote, racism is wrong, unquote, does not change a thing. It's what you do after that does. I want to see your consistency, actionable movement. I know I have a lot to unlearn and relearn myself, and I'm spending this time listening so that I can show up and take action. Hi, everyone. It's Tiffany here, and you're listening to this episode of Tiffany and You. I have with me today outdoor enthusiast, disability and diversity equity advocate, Karima Batts. Hey, Karima. Hi, Tiffany. So Karima and I met back in 2016 when I was living in New York. She's based in New York City. And I went to my first ever adaptive climbing group class at Brooklyn Boulders and had a blast. And I loved rock climbing as a kid. And after I became disabled when I was nine, didn't think that there was an option for me for someone who could only climb with one arm. So that's when I met Karima. We had a really great Instagram live session about healthy screen time a couple months ago. Yeah. And I wish we could be re-meeting under better circumstances, but it was actually interesting because on that call at the end, I was like, Karima, you should come on my podcast. And now here we are. So I figured I would start. I always love starting with just hearing a little bit more about your disability origin story. Okay. Well, I don't know. That's a really hard one. Origin of, (laughs) I guess my origin story. Well, I grew up in New York City, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, In in Flatbush, Brooklyn. Um, I I was born in Manhattan Hospital and was placed in the foster system. My mother had behavioral disabilities. You can imagine that 20 years ago or 30 years ago is very different than how disabilities are treated. (laughs) So she didn't quite get the care that she needed. So I was found when I was born through someone who worked at a hospital that knew 
some family members from church and recognized the, the unique name. And that's how I found out I existed. I also had a half brother born a year and a half before me that my family didn't know about because my mother had been missing for a few years with her mental illness, but they were able to adopt uh, me and my brother. And we were raised by our aunts and uncles and him in one house in Manhattan, me in Brooklyn. And we were raised in a, a, a pretty strict Christian household, went to private school, Christian schools, and went to church every weekend. And my uncle who raised me was very big on gardening, was very big on fishing, especially. And he was a scout leader. And so I joined that as well, which sparked my love for the outdoors. And as I became an adult, especially in my 20s, I went to college, Hunter College, and wanted to work in marketing and publishing and all the things that young 20-somethings wants to do. And <laughs> while working for Cambridge Publishing, I started to get really sick, but didn't know why. Eventually found out that it was cancer and left the job and then the recession happened, which I thought was great timing because I couldn't work anyway. So due to that, I had the stage four cancer called synovial sarcoma, which led to me becoming an amputee, um, left below the knee in 2009. And then I went through cancer treatment. So we got a little bit cut off there, but... As you know, now Karima is a kick-ass stage four can cancer survivor and amputee. We're going to take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to chat with Karima about r the racial injustice that's been happening now. So we're recording this conversation on June 1st. We've just come out of a really heavy weekend, a really heavy week, probably a really heavy period of time where we've had the unnecessary and violent deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Nina Pop, Sean Reed, so many more. I'm just curious, Karima, what's your reaction? How, how are you doing with all of this? I think for people who are Black and have experienced racism their entire lives, I'm not saying we're numb or anything, but it's not the first time that a Black man was killed by police unnecessarily. Isn't the first time someone's been accused of a crime they didn't commit. This is not new. It's 100 years old. It's before my time even. So when someone's like, how are you feeling about this? I'm like, I guess the way I've always been feeling. It sucks. Hmm. I guess with all of the you know protests that happened over the weekend, there was something about that kind of energy that felt a little bit new to me, but perhaps that's still not new. If you're talking about the energy, I'm a wait and see. I see there's a lot of social media posts. I see there's a lot of protests. It's also not the first time there's been protests either. It's the first time there's ever been COVID in protests and you mix that together with 40 million people out of work. There's a lot of free time people didn't have, they have now. And that changes yeah. things too. That changes how things move as well. Because I remember there being protests, whether it be for disability rights, women's rights, people with color, people of color rights, I always had to be like, well, can I attend that? Because I have a work thing I got to do. 
now I can attend every single one. <laughs> like people are like, I have all the time in the world. All I'm doing is gardening. Let me go to a protest that means something to me. Yeah. And then you also have a lot of people who are sitting at home dealing with the PTSD of COVID. They might be dealing with the financial strain of COVID, the fear, isolation, and then an anger already built up over the last three months. It's almost like a, a powder keg to add this to. It was like yeah. a fuse to an already existing bomb of emotion. Like I said, these sort of events happening to black people, not the first time, not new. In a week, the same amount of people, the same amount of black people have been killed needlessly and violently by quote unquote mistake. And it's just been brushed underneath the rug, not the first time. So when you, when you have that happening, but you combine it with everything else, I think it definitely has a major effect on the response of the people. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. When COVID started, many of us were talking about collective grief and trauma that all of us were going through and how hard this pandemic was on all of us. And now we've added another layer. I'm looking back at our messages here and someone had read something to me they had seen on Facebook around how this is the time for non-Black people to step up, but it's not just about listening to another podcast or reading another book or sharing something on social media. Like we need people to show up. So I'm curious from your point of view, what do you feel like you need right now? And then what do you think that those of us who are non-Black can do to really get educated things that we can do to, to best support? I said it on my Instagram this morning because I tend to post in the morning. One, it's when my mind races the most. You think of all the things you have to do today. And then the news hits you and all those things hit you first thing in the morning. Your, your phone's lighting up. Whatever you missed last night. I specifically posted because I did get a lot of messages from non-Black people concerned about how I'm feeling. How are you dealing with it? Are you okay? It seemed weird because considering that Black people die literally every day, every week, and there are still more stories that you guys are not hearing during these last four days, like two other people also needlessly died. But because it doesn't make news, it doesn't make mass media, you know, it doesn't get the, the same amount of attention because the celebrity is not about it. Your mayor didn't have to go up a statement about it. so to get these messages now from people that i've known my whole life or for years who are not black and i'm just like you should have asked me how i felt about it when i got called a nigger at age 20 in lincoln nebraska <laughs> you know, like, 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 mm-hmm. so i was like i don't know i feel the same way i did yesterday day before <laughs> day before <laughs> day before good allyship is not about asking me how i'm feeling Unfortunately, I hate to tell you this, but Black people have been working on that ourselves. We have to deal with this every day. So we've already created our own communication system about checking out how we feel about our racism. So it's like, that's unnecessary for me. And then why don't you just place yourself in, in my shoes? How would you feel if you had to work four times as hard 
to to prove to a white person that you're more than you are if you also understand that then you already know how i feel you don't have to ask <laughs> don't ask me how i'm feeling just make action i feel like action is the best thing anyone can do right now and that comes with people just being aware that this is something that they need to work on and then you just ask yourself what you can do um, there are petitions out there. There are things you can do at home too, or where you live. Well, speaking up and speaking out when you see racism happening before your eyes, just open your mouth. Like, cause that's really where the change begins. Some of these same people are your neighbors and they see a neighbor making a racist comment about the black neighbor, that's the time for you to do, that's when you do something. I, I see the protest and it is humbling as it was in 1960s, to see white people march with Martin Luther King or ride the Freedom Ride bus in the 60s. It's also very great to see white allies march with signs with brown and black people on racism and brutality. But when the protests are no longer trending and everyone goes back home or back to work, COVID vaccine, that's where the real work happens. Like where I really can actually say you're doing something because it, it shouldn't be like this trending moment just because you see it on the news now, it now matters. And, and that's my fear. Like, okay, so the protests and the riots are gone and then after that, no one ever talks about it again. And then another news story where someone needlessly gets killed, it gets enough viral hits that it shows up on your feed and you go, I'm so shocked. <laughs> you know, like, I was like, it just means it's still happening from the same one you saw before and the same one you read about 50 years ago. It's the exact same thing. I, yeah. I think for me though, as a disabled person, as a person with a disability, a noticeable disability, that's very visual, like an amputation. I'm very concerned about the black and brown people with disabilities or different abilities, like who actively speak ASL and don't speak a hearing language, who can't hear cop sirens and police yelling their defense to them and watch them get kicked and thrown down on the floor because their disability doesn't allow them to comply in the same way or be knowledgeable about what's happening. I think right now we're only talking about able-bodied individuals who were hurt by police. And there's also people with disabilities that have been hurt by police. And that gets washed over just a little bit more because the cop goes, well, how was I supposed to know? Was it complying? Yeah. And we did hear stories at the beginning of this pandemic of our deaf community members being punished for the sheltering notices, the quarantine notices not being made accessible to them. So how were they supposed to know if they were, um, if they were out and about? I think really acknowledging that there is an, an intersectional part of this as well, which is for those of us who, who are non-Black, it's 
how can we speak up? But then how can we also acknowledge that all these identities compound on top of each other? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with that. There are books I can suggest about how to be an ally, like White Fragility is a very popular one that I've sent to a lot of friends who have asked me the same similar questions you're asking me about allyship and learning about anti-racism versus saying you're not racist and being active action ally saying that's not my point of view that's theirs i'm a different white person that like like or i'm a different asian person or i'm a different spanish person and look at all my black friends like it doesn't mean that you're anti-racist it just yeah neutral (laughs) you're just not active racist you're passive racist It's, it's like a totally different thing for me to be a true ally of transgender or and then there's this also this intersectionality. Like I think people forget that there's actually racism in the disabled community. Yes. I think that's a really big thing because I know you're like, well, I don't want to separate us anymore because we're already separated by this large population of people where the laws are not in our favor. But even though the laws are not in our favor as a culture of people, you know, as PWDs are, a culture of people. There are separations that we have amongst our ability. We had one of our adaptive climbing sessions and there were a few wheelchair users on our Zoom call and he wanted to touch on laws that affect wheelchair users. And in that he tried to use me as an example and saying how easy I have it because whenever I want to just get one and I was like that's not how my health insurance works and so there's all these kind of like rumors or perceptions of how our lives are better or worse based on physical mobility or different disabilities and then there's another sort of separation among our race as well because I'll go to a para sports event and I work in para climbing and I can tell you that most of the people in paraclimbing are Caucasian. And it's not because only Caucasian people would like to climb or like climbing. It's just the access to it. Their parents can pay for better health insurance. They get better opportunities for assisted devices. They get kind of pushed to the front of the line. Get more knowledge on resources their friend in this department can get them on this clinical trial. Yeah, yeah. I, and they get I picked think for all the news stories on para sports too, over any brown children or brown people. And they seem to focus less on our disability than they'll say how a black girl from this neighborhood and she also happens to be missing a leg. Like, as if the disparity was actually the race before the disability, when we're so used to like hearing the stories where they're like, a blind man struggled <laughs> to climb this mountain and his struggles with his blindness. Like, it's, oh, black kid. <laughs> like, the story is just written differently too among the disabled mm. community as well. And who I see on the covers of the magazines focus on people with disabilities and who run the organizations 
Yeah, there's another disability advocate named Felicia Thompson who created the hashtag disability to white. And I got to see her speak on a panel a couple of weeks ago. And she talked about exactly what you're we talking about, just racism that exists within the disability community. And I will acknowledge within the Asian community, we have a lot of anti-Black racism as well. And, and I have a role to play in terms of calling out statements that are made. And then the other part of that is there's a term called disability justice that was coined in 2005 because they felt that the disability rights movement and disability studies didn't centralize the needs and experiences of people experiencing intersectional oppression, like disabled people of color, immigrants, queer, trans, etc. So I am noticing that even within disability rights, disability advocacy, there's an acknowledgement that there has been a, an erasure of Blackness from the history. Yeah, I definitely do believe that. And I think more than anything, I heard people talk about the riot part. So there's a number of reasons why I don't riot. I believe in OPP, other people's property. There's a rap song from the 90s. Everyone should listen to it. And, <laughs> but like, I always had a thing about other people's property. And I've never been so, so angry that I've hit another person. I know there's people who are, but I've never been so angry that I've hit another person. So I can never be so angry that I would destroy something that doesn't belong to me. I'm not saying that it's not possible for people to be that way. I know it is. And you have to also understand that, like we said, we're dealing with a powder keg, but also it, there's a, advantages and disadvantages of it because there's never been a movement that didn't have any violence in it and that's the truth i would love for you to name some big movement in history where laws were changed no one got hurt no one died and everything was perfectly normal so here's the thing it wasn't just like one city or one town where protests and rioting and it didn't happen just for one night, it's still happening. It's happening today. It happened last night while we're on this, <laughs> while we're talking to each other. Even Tokyo had a protest against racism the other day, yeah. siding with American and other brown people because during COVID, all the Africans were kicked out of apartments they paid for in Japan and China, that they actually paid for because of COVID. They were just like yeah. mistreating anyone who was staying there that weren't Asian citizens. So in that sense, it's like, my question is always about action. Like when someone saw that their neighbor of African heritage was told to leave their apartment for no reason and was just giving them notice and says, you all have to leave. What did that white neighbor do? How did they respond? They give them a place to stay. Said, hey, you can stay with me. Did they approach their community leader about that injustice? Say that they disagreed with it? Because if everybody in their neighborhood said that they disagreed with kicking out the Africans that paid rent, because there actually is a rule that you have to pay rent for up to six months in order to even get an apartment if you're not a resident, like you have to prepay mm -hmm. six months of rent. 
So people were getting kicked out of their apartment where they still had months of rent they paid for and they weren't getting their money back. So the question is, if that whole neighborhood said, hey, that's wrong, no, give them back their apartment, I'm sure it would have ended differently. And that's the same thing here. So for with, with my program, with Adaptive Climbing Group, I've, my focus is very much on equality. And not just because I'm a Black woman, but just because I believe in all quality and all aspects, even the ones that I don't, you know, personally belong to. I'm a hetero, straight woman from Flappish, Brooklyn. But on my sponsored athletes, I've had white males, Republicans. I've had bisexual, transsexual, Hispanic Black people don't know their race because they're adopted, actually, but just know they're kind of brown. <laughs> you name it, we've had it. Whether they've had family that had money or came from absolutely nothing. And I never asked people how much money they have. To get sponsored by my program, the only time that you have to fill out any financial information is if you want total full sponsorship and you have to the poverty level of the state you live in. That's it. I don't need to see what you spend your money on or what you value. If you want partial sponsorship, you don't have to show me any financial information at all. Because that's not why we're here. We're here as one group of people with disabilities have access to a sport that's been denied of equality. And so if people bring themselves together and saying, hey, we're fighting under this one banner as people with disabilities, matter what color you come from or if your mom has an estate and put your ramps in the house for you to get around because not everybody even has that option it doesn't matter like all people with disabilities should be treated well as humans and have their human rights and should be able to enter the floor of any structure that is built for the purpose of human beings that is a human right and so i think if people stop just looking out for themselves and look at every neighbor as an extension of themselves, things would be so much better. Anyone who's different from you, if you're advocating for males and you're female, if you're advocating for female and you're a male, if you're advocating for an able-bodied person, I don't know, whoever it is, like you should think of every person around you in your immediate sphere, anyone that you constantly come in contact with as an extension of yourself. Mm. We're a part of each other. When you were born, Tiffany, you didn't just affect your parents' lives. It wasn't just your mother carrying you in the belly. You affected everyone in this world the day you were born. A nurse either got fired or hired. <laughs> a doctor had his first birth of an Asian girl from, I don't remember what state you're from. But whatever it is, you affected their day, their whole life. You became a part of all of those people's lives immediately from the day that you entered this world. Yeah. It's like, rationally, I understand that. I'm seeing a lot of messaging around we should just connect across our shared humanity. Honestly, that sounds like very heart-centered work to me of really just acknowledging and seeing every person as an extension of ourselves. I think there's something that got lost in the way which is this whole idea of othering, that, that people who look different and that othering became so, those lines became so defined, so deeply drawn by certain experiences that I guess maybe happened throughout our lives. Maybe that's where like starting with 
learning, reading how to be an anti-racist, reading white fragility, maybe that's where that starts. Maybe it's in engaging with podcasts created by people of color or giving donations to organizations that are working on racial justice or even speaking up. I think that's what I'm seeing that looks kind of different now, which you alluded to before. It's now people have been sitting in their homes for three months and maybe they have a little bit more time and we want to take action. We want to know, how can I look at you, Karima, and see you as an extension of me? Oh, what's a good example? You choose people to follow on Instagram, okay? Whether you personally know them or not, you've invested your time. And my experiences that I have in my life is a part of who make me who I am. Whether it's saying hi to a person on the street, getting my food from the Chick-fil-A drive-thru, because they have gluten-free buns, but I don't know if anybody knows that, but they have gluten-free buns. <laughs> Whether you're Christian or not, or care about their politics, they have gluten-free buns, I go there. So, <laughs> and that's what I need from them. So in that sense, everybody I interact with has now became an extension of my life because they have taken part in making me who I am today. Yeah. That will always be my sole way that I move through space in life. At the same time, it is really important for us to have affinity spaces for our mental health. And for people who don't know what affinity spaces mean, and especially in the diversity, equity, inclusion speak, because I know a lot of these terms don't mean anything unless you teach this on, for a living. But affinity spaces is where a bunch of people who are matching get together and express themselves with people like themselves, which is why we have things like our little private Facebook groups where we yeah. talk about disability issues and whether or not they are able to get their medications in COVID or little tips and tricks that we need to buy that are very particular to how we move through the space. And in mm -hmm. that, we must move through the space different. We're looking for resources for people who move through that space differently. So that would be an affinity group. Those things are super important. Yeah, but you could even call adaptive climbing group a type of affinity group. It totally is. I'm telling you, we're so weird and unique because yeah, we're people with disabilities, but we're people with disabilities who like to climb. That is a very unique percentage. <laughs> <laughs> so. I'm, 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 I'm trying to get on that in-group too, but you, you actually got me thinking of just how important all of the communities I'm a part of have allowed me to stay as socially connected as I am. So I have my diverse abilities of the world. And then I have these other groups that are like for people who are passionate about social justice. When I was in college, I was part of a group called Sponsors for Educational Opportunity. And it was meant for black and brown students, Asian women, and we were all working at our own investment banks. It was really the first time that I thought about what it was like to be a woman in finance or a disabled person in finance, where I started to think about the different affinities or the different identities I had that were impacting whether or not I was part of the majority or not. Mm -hmm. And I hate, oh, two words that I hate that I've been hearing a lot on the news and I've heard everywhere, especially during this heated time of racial discussion in America. Minority and minority. So they're like minorities. And I'm like, what do you mean minorities? Look at how much of the population we are. Mm -hmm. And why do you get to be the majority? Why are we using power words? Yeah, I mean, that's actually, it, that's part of the reason why I don't use the word marginalized 
I'll use the word disadvantaged because that's true. But Mm. because at times the groups are disadvantaged based on a lot of factors that may include race or financial background or something um, or all of the above. And so I'll use the word disadvantage. I hate the word privilege. I hate the word minority and my majority as definitions. And I hate the word urban. <laughs> and actually, to be um, honest with you, I don't like diversity as a descriptor to mean people of color in a space or people of disability in a space. It means like y'all sprinkled this in like seasoning, bowl of white rice, which is a great side. But <laughs> well, I I I will tell people that diverse is a group, not a person. Oh, definitely. Right? Um, why do you hate the word privilege? Because I feel like a lot of us are really thinking about what levers of privilege we do have right now to to try and take action and to try and do something. Okay, so one time and some fellow advocates. Um, we're three different races. We're black, we're uh, two different types of Asian, Filipino and Indian. And we were on a panel where we were supposed to be the keynote for a big summit outdoors. It's called PGM1 Summit, which stands for the global majority, uh, meaning people who are not Caucasian, okay? And it was probably about 500 people of color who work in the outdoors and various forms for the government and state parks or run nonprofits that work in the outdoors, you know, ski instructors who, who's an amputee instructor and or policymakers that get people with disabilities outdoors. So uh, we were the three or four that were invited. We're in which this is an, an all able-bodied summit. We're trending as they say. So they checked the boxes and they really wanted to learn something they said. And I said, okay, great. They invited us to the space and there's a big stadium kind of seating with the stage and the and all the keynotes were on the stage. Well, guess what? Way to get on the stage was with stairs. And of the four of us on the panel, one using a cane, one using crutches, myself with my prosthetic, and then the other person had an electronic wheelchair. So we're like, all of us or none of us. So we said, this is unacceptable. The fact that we didn't know, we, and we couldn't even attend all the workshops that they had because their building that they chose for this big summit was not accessible. So there were a couple of workshops that Teresa couldn't get to because you, could, you only had to go downstairs to get to in the middle of Philadelphia. So there there was a lot of like inaccessibility in a summit that was accessibility and that's where people of color with disabilities will will get the sidearm even in a station of people with disabilities and then there was someone in the crowd that asked us when we brought up the situation of why we weren't on the stage they go well as able-bodied people of color should we be using our privilege and I said to that person, I don't understand. What do you mean by privilege? That you're walking and she's not? That's a privilege? Does that make you better than me? Like, Because literally privilege is a power word. And I said, you have an ability and I have an ability. My ability is that my parking space is better than yours. So if we decide <laughs> to take my car 
Am I using my privilege? <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. For the better yeah. parking I mean, space at the stadium. It's just like, it's, I don't like it. I was like, I have an ability to get us a better parking space if we all went together in my car. Am I privileged? So now my disability is seen differently because it gets you to a better space. I, it's just like... Do you get what I mean? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's like I, I hear it. I, I, I can see it both ways. I think that language is super important. And the way we've always talked about disability has always been this person is suffering and they're impaired and accomplish this despite their disability. When, and a lot of, right? And a lot of that further perpetuates stigma. At the, I think when you were talking about being a Black disabled woman, I think that we were talking about aspects of privilege that do exist within the community, which is there is a hierarchy of disabilities that are better than others, quote unquote, whatever that means. Yeah, well, that's, you know? this is a perceived notion, may I add. Because like, for instance, there's people in the deaf community that don't consider their language a disability. And that's mm -hmm. because there's a large group of people who says the fact that they speak another language somehow makes them less than and that they should use their privilege. Do you get what I'm saying? That's These definers are what's messing things up. Because if I mm -hmm. literally changed how I said that, and I did not use the word privilege, and if I said, hey, you have an ability during this protest that I don't have, and they was like, what do you mean? And I said, well, well, you're destroying property and rioting. When you get arrested, you're likely to be uh, treated with less aggression. So be very knowledgeable about all the abilities you have and use your abilities in a positive way. Not your privileges, your abilities. Interesting. Well, I'll make one last point on this. Oftentimes within the disability community, we're always talking about people in terms of their abilities or their lack of abilities. Mm -hmm. I never talk about this the person. lack of anyone. I feel like that is also mm. part of my, my mantra too. I don't spend my time focusing on what people have, don't have. All of the abilities you're talking about are additive. They're all additive. Everyone's Everything is an additive. Anything mm -hmm. I talk about is an additive. I see myself as being an amputee additive. Always, mm -hmm. always have, always will. It's just part of my life. We all are handed a, a bunch of playing cards and that's what I got. So I'm going to use it. It's true. We yeah. do, I cannot change the world and get them to think exactly as I think. <laughs> like I'm very aware of it. But I feel that my point of being as an advocate is to live that message. and Hopefully it'll just rub off on a few people each turn. Exactly. And you are getting me to think differently as well. And part of why I started Diversibility was really around how can we have a narrative that I did all of these things because of my disability, because of everything that I have been handed. My last question for you is what role do you see the political process playing in all of this? Oh, uh -huh. local or national? Federal is a whole different bag of tricks. <laughs> <laughs> I feel I, locally I guess I'm thinking it'll be very, very great. Yeah. I see it already. I see it in the news. I would like to see more discussion around people with disabilities. There was I saw a video of like an older man who 
pushed down by police as he's crossing his way. He had a cane on during what was happening. Another friend of mine said that there's a protester who uses a wheelchair who got pushed over in a chair when they're pushing back the crowd and the effects of that, of us taking part in protests. And then someone said, well, you shouldn't be out there. But I'm like, well, you should be out there too. Everybody get hurt. Like, <laughs> like, like, like it's just a lot of different discussions that we need to have around this whole entire current movement that's happening right now, both health-wise, financial-wise, and racial-wise. During these last two to three months, that COVID has brought a lot of disparities, whether you're a person of disability identifier, a person of different sexes, trans, they can't get their medications like they used to right now, and all these other disparities that are happening or, or being brought to light in, when to see what is a priority, what seems to not be among people. And so I think that when it comes to that, I would love to see more flag waving of those advocating for people with disabilities as a result of police brutality, because those stories are not being told. Mm -hmm. We're only getting able-bodied mm -hmm. stories. I've yeah. noticed that. Able-bodied people of color, police brutality is, is fervent. That's all I see. But every week, someone with disability, whether it be behavioral or not, has experienced some sort of police brutality or became a person with a disability because of police brutality. Those kind of people have been in my client mm -hmm. program too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like this conversation will continue to be ongoing, but if people want to continue the conversation, is there a place that they can find you online? Um, yeah, I have a website now because... COVID, I know, COVID I made me make a website. <laughs> I had to do something with my hands and I can only be in my garden for so long. So uh, karimabats.com is my website if you want to reach out to me. I do do diversity equity work as a consultant and I've done it pro bono for the outdoor organizations where I'm, which I try to get people with disabilities equity in those spaces. Equity is way more important to me than equality. And I work currently with USA Climbing on their diversity equity task force for the next year and a half. I provided training for Access Fund and the American Alpine Club and climbing facilities across America. I'm trying to create better disability etiquette in, in this sports experience overall, using climbing as a catalyst to do that. So I'm always happy to work with people who want to, to do this kind of work and is passionate about it. So please reach out to me. And I'm also on Instagram, um, H, yeah, H-E-R-H-O-P-N-E-S-S. -S. That's my personal Instagram. So you might see a lot of food on it, but there's also some good other stuff on there too. Awesome. What are you doing for yourself these what days? What I'm doing for the, myself these days is um, I relearned how to use a bike in COVID. So I got to take that time and do that. And that's been an interesting experience for my bike shop. <laughs> I had to make some adjustments mm. for me. And doing it independently, like being able to take an independent bike ride, it was a really big deal for me. And also for myself, I am spending more time in meditation before I start my days. Well, thank you so much, Karima, for being on the show and really appreciated 
getting to have this candid conversation with you about how we can all show up and see everyone as extensions of ourselves. Thank you so much, Tiffany, for having me on and allowing me to um, have some therapy and conversation with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tiffany and You. This is your host, Tiffany Yu. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave us a rating and write us a review over at Apple Podcasts. It allows these conversations and these episodes to be discovered by other podcast listeners. I'm hoping that we can co-create something here that's valuable for you. So to the extent that you have feedback or other topics you'd like us to explore, don't hesitate to reach out. You can find us at tiffanyu.com slash podcast. And a special shout out to Root Hub for our opening and closing podcast medleys. We release episodes weekly, so I hope that you'll join us next week for the next episode. Tiffany and you. This one is done and another coming soon. Special rendezvous for Tiffany and